Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. My name is Joseph Cacharo, and I am joined, as always, by fellow co-host Joel Fon. Hey, man. How's it going? Um, is this the part where I'm just supposed to, like, gesture vaguely at everything? I'm okay on a personal level, I mm. guess, but uh, in the grand scheme of things, uh, ship's not the best. Yeah, I don't know what else to say other than that. Yeah, before before we get into, um, you know, the main topic of our conversation today and what should be quite frankly the main topic of everyone's conversation today and right now i did just want to mention off the top uh, legendary washington bullets big man wes unseld died today I, I, i'm not quite sure if it was today or last night but died at 74 years old i just did want to mention that he's a hall of famer you know um we've gotten a lot of jokes off on this podcast uh, myself especially about the plight of the wizards and just how bad that franchise has been for so long well there was a time when the Wizards in the late 70s were a contender and actually won a title. And the player most responsible for that was Wes, Wes Ansel. This is a guy that won MVP and Rookie of the Year in the same season. He was, as Woj called him uh, today on Twitter, a mountain of a man. If you go back and see team pictures of the Wizards or even just pictures of Wes Ansel, you will not believe that that is an in-shape NBA player. And yet he was, and he was a superstar and he was dominant. And, you know, by all accounts, uh, you know, everyone called him a gentle giant and just said he was... He was a great man. So rest in peace to an NBA legend and um, condolences to his family and anyone who knew and loved him. Yeah, I mean, you you just written that piece about the 78 Bullets who um, yeah. we, we did a series about the most unlikely champions in sports history. And you wrote about that team that was led by Unseld and Elvin Hayes. I mean, it was a great piece and obviously a great player and definitely like an unsung player, not one that you hear talked about among the game's greats, but he had a hell of a career. One of the best rebounders in league history. Uh, and I believe mm-hmm. his son is uh, an assistant coach with the Nuggets now as well. Yep. So, you know, some more tough news uh, in what's yep. been a really, really tough news cycle for sure. Which brings us to the real conversation we wanted to have today. Right off the bat, I can just say that we're going to talk about our feelings, uh, uh, kind of about what's going on in, in the U.S. right now, in the world in general, but in Canada as well, you know, it, it, in Toronto as well, but for the most part in the United States. And that is the the outrage that's come about from the video of another police killing of a black man. And, you know, I think it would be very easy to assume that maybe our platform isn't big enough or that people that are tuning into an NBA podcast, maybe don't want to hear that or or that's just not where they come for this uh, kind of commentary. And I by no means believe you and I have the answers or that, you know, we're changing the world by doing this or anything like that. It, you know, the conversations we had between the two of us, we're not doing this because we simply feel we have to. We're talking about this because we legitimately want to and feel we, you know, everyone needs to. And I think part of the problem, and that's been the problem, is that people do assume their platform isn't big enough or that it's someone else's problem for someone else to address and someone else to solve. And I think, you know, the the whole point of, of not just being not racist, but of being actively anti-racist, you know, in addition to sharing and educating and donating and, and you know, donating your time as well as your money, like in addition to all that is actually addressing it and talking about it. And obviously not lost on me, or I'm sure not lost on us, the fact that we are two white guys that host a podcast about the NBA, which is a, you know, predominantly black league and um, the athletes for the most part that we talk to, you know, are majority black and we tell their stories and share their stories. And while some people might say they didn't tune in to a basketball podcast to hear this, I would say uh, it would be extremely disingenuous of us and and quite frankly, selfish and naive of us to uh, make our living covering the NBA and talking about the NBA and then not addressing this. So 
I'll say that off the top and I'll throw it to you for, for anything you want to add. Yeah, well, I mean, if you tune into an NBA podcast and you're tuning into a podcast about, like you said, a, a league that is made up of majority black players. So, you know, you're interested in a league uh, whose populace is deeply, deeply affected by institutionalized racism. You know, I think you're right to say, like, it's, I don't know if there's an appetite to hear two white guys like ourselves talk about this shit, but I do feel like, you know, we have a responsibility as two people uh, whose livelihoods depend on covering that league. I don't want to make that like some sort of an exception as though like white people who don't cover the NBA or like right. aren't interested in or profiting off of black culture in some way shouldn't also be having these conversations. But I do feel like, you know, we have a platform as small as it may be. And I think it's our responsibility at the very least to, um, to actually understand what these protests are about and why people in the black community are so angry and so hurt and so frustrated and, um, and why they're screaming for change and reform. So if we can, in whatever tiny way, be a part of uh, amplifying that message, then I think it's our responsibility to do that. I was saying this last week. We didn't get to record last week, but um, for the people that are are more bothered, or even look, I you know, it's uncomfortable to watch cities burn. No one, no one wants to see that. No one tunes in saying, "Hey, I hope I see this today." But the point of it is, is that you should be uncomfortable right now. One of the people I've read a lot about during this time um, over at Sportsnet in Canada is Donovan Bennett who I was very lucky enough when I was breaking into the industry, um, kind of had him almost like a, a big brother in the media industry. Um, Tommy a lot was very good to me uh, as he was starting to get big. And, you know, one thing he mentioned, and I don't remember now if he, if it was, he said it on uh, on a radio show or if I read it in a PC role, but he mentioned about like, if you're a black man in America or in general, you know, you live with that uh, discomfort in a lot of ways. And so for people to now be all up in arms because they feel uncomfortable with the fact that their city is burning or that there is rioting and looting. And again, no one wants to see that it is uncomfortable, but you should feel uncomfortable because black people and those that have been victimized by the systemic racism that exists and that you can't deny feel uncomfortable every day. And so to, to be so appalled by the, the rioting and the looting and the outrage that's been sparked is just completely missing the point of why that outrage exists and why it got to this point. If you're more bothered by what's gone on in the last week than you are by what happened last Monday to George Floyd to spark this outrage, then then you are part of the problem. So if the, if that is how you feel, and I'm not saying you listening to this podcast will be the reason you no longer feel that again, you know, I'm not naive enough to believe that. But if that, if that is how you feel, you know, like look deep within yourself and try to educate yourself and talk to people, man, talk to people you know, our friend friend of the show, Alex Wong, um, had a great tweet a couple days ago. He said, honestly, just talk to more people that are visible minorities. Talk to more people that deal with discrimination on a daily basis and, and, and just try to relate to them. You shouldn't have had to walk in someone else's shoes and to have experienced someone's life experiences to have empathy and, and, and to sympathize with them. You know, like that, that should not be how it works because if that was the case, no one could ever sympathize or empathize with anyone. And not only that, I mean, that's all really important, but I think just in general, I, I don't think that it's helpful to anybody to focus on the property destruction, um, the fires, the looting, 
like, I, I'm not going to say that I condone that, but I'm also not necessarily going to say that I condemn it. And I think like you and I for sure, and I, I, I'm hopeful that, you know, a bunch of people listening have seen countless videos from across the U.S. of police instigating and escalating violence at what were otherwise peaceful protests. And I just think that's really telling because these protests are about police violence, you know, specifically against Black people. And what we so often hear in response to that when, uh, you know, a wave of protests pops up in, in response to a brazen uh, police killing of an unarmed black person is, well, it's not all cops don't generalize, you know, it's just a few bad apples. And I mean, if ever there was an opportunity for police to show that they could demonstrate restraint, that they could deescalate conflict, that they could hear the message essentially that's been shouted at them uh, and not retaliate with force, this, and, and it's not just this, obviously. I mean, it was the same thing with the protests in Ferguson a few years ago. Like, they can't even do it. They, they can't even pretend. And I just feel like that's the thing right now that should be receiving more attention than, than the looting of certain protesters. Yep. I, I did just want to get it right as well, because I know I mentioned it. But what, uh, what Donovan Bennett had said in a tweet was that, um, you know, if that makes you uncomfortable, so be it, because uncomfort is a state of being for minorities. And I think that is a very important thing to consider for anyone that is so uncomfortable with what they're seeing on their TVs. And, and like you just mentioned, that you want to talk about things that should make you uncomfortable. Look at the, the escalation of, of what the police are doing in a lot of these, what are mostly peaceful protests, the way they're treating the protesters, the way they're treating media, trying to cover the protesters. It's a scary thought. And and not just because we're in media. It's a scary thought because the media and the free press is supposed to be our eyes and ears to what's going on. And if the very thought and notion of eyes and ears to the people being out there on the streets is, is somehow threatening to police, you know, that tells you something about what's going on there. Right. And I think the scary thing, I mean, the scary thing, I guess, is just thinking about where this all goes, um, because the response of most mayors and governors has been to multiply the police presence in the cities where these protests are happening, to call in the National Guard, um, you know, to arm their police to the teeth with tear gas and rubber bullets and at some point, like it just becomes live ammunition and people start dying. And already um, there was a man named David McAtee who in Louisville was killed by police when they, by all accounts, just indiscriminately started shooting into a crowd. And I think, you know, that's the really frightening thing is like, how does this end? Because in the past, uh, the the response to these kind of protests is never to listen, um, to internalize the message and to try and find actionable solutions and actually make a good faith move toward police reform. It's just to respond with increasing force until they can bring these protesters to heel. And I, I it doesn't seem like you know, the tide of anger and frustration is going to settle down anytime soon. And 
I'm not saying that it should, but it worries me because, you know, especially given the people in positions of leadership right now and what their messages have been, it just seems like we're headed toward an escalation of force. And, uh, and that means that more people are going to die. And, and as long as, uh, you know, the message or the thing that people are focusing on is like the actions of certain looters or vandals, um, while the police are shooting at people with impunity, then I think the problem's just going to get worse. And that's a scary thought, um, but it's an, un- it's an unfortunately valid one. Yeah. Another thing I'd say too, is just for people that don't understand, you've never had to deal with these things and you just personally can't imagine yourself in the middle of a protest that gets a little rowdy. If you can't personally imagine yourself just being so frustrated and and feeling helpless that you become one of those protesters in the middle of the street that maybe even gets violent. Like if you can't picture that and put yourself in that position, then think about how desperate and hurt and angry and hopeless someone must have to feel to get to that point, you know, like, and that's what I'm saying when I say that you shouldn't have to have lived someone's experiences to be able to empathize with them and sympathize with them. Like, I mean, if you, if you're so appalled by the fact that someone could go, could do that, well, then think about, think about what it would take to push you to that. Cause that's what they're dealing with. Right. And, it's and like, that's what they're dealing with. It's almost pushed to the side, the fact that there's still a global pandemic going on. And so yeah. to see. And who's, and who's been, you know, most disproportionately affected by yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. It is about empathy for sure. And, uh, a lot of people, you know, white people, myself included can be extremely myopic at times and it can be hard though. It shouldn't be, but it can be to, to just see past your own experiences of the world. You know, I, in my own life have never had cause to, uh, fear for my life in an encounter with the police officer for a long time. I just felt like, and I was taught and I was brought up to believe that like the cops are good and like they're there to protect me and maybe that's true they're there to protect me but that is not everybody's experience of the world and i think you know so empathy i think is the first step but but there's also actionability and i think the second part is where i and um certainly a lot of other white people have fallen short and don't necessarily know what it is we're supposed to be doing um but i think like what's become clear is like there really is a need for serious reform and practical solutions and not just platitudes like we need to end racism or nobody should be treated differently based on the color of their skin like i think most people i would hope can agree with that um but i think there has to actually be um like steps taken toward uh improving this in both the u.s and in canada and i think that like a lot of our listeners I know are Canadian and I feel like it's a, a pretty common Canadian trope to sort of measure ourselves against our neighbors to the South and do so favorably and, and say that like the U.S.'s problems are their problems and that, that, that shit doesn't happen where we live. And that's just like flatly untrue. Um, we had a protest in Toronto over the weekend because uh, a young black woman named Regis Korczynski Paquette died under very mysterious circumstances involving the police. Um, the police said that she jumped to her death 
Her family said that she was pushed off the balcony by the police. There's an investigation going on into her death. A few weeks before that, there was a young man named DeAndre Campbell who was killed by police. Um, And there are are lots of journalists in Canada who have done really important work unearthing this stuff. Uh, Desmond Cole is one of them. And like he he compiled a list of all the uh, Canadians, Black Canadians, Indigenous Canadians who have been killed by police in just the last few years. And it was a tough thing to read, but I, I would encourage anybody to read it the whole way through and just sit with that and, and recognize that this is absolutely not just an American problem, um, but that it's going on here too. And I think, um, I mean, in the past, like, the conversations have sort of been about increasing implicit bias training uh, or cops wearing body cameras. And it just seems like that stuff hasn't really helped. Um, I mean, this, this whole thing kind of started because you had video uh, that showed a cop using his knee to strangle the life out of a handcuffed black man, George Floyd, and three other cops standing around watching it happen. And two cop, two cops, you know, literally, um, not even just standing around, but taking part in the physical. Right. And it, it still took what, uh, three days for them to even arrest and charge, uh, the primary officer. I believe four, I believe four, four days. And, and the other three officers are, have, have still not been arrested and charged. Um, and you know, back in March, Brianna Taylor was killed in her home in, in Louisville, in her own home, in her bed. Um, and none of the officers involved in that, what was supposed to be a drug raid, a no-knock warrant um, that led to her getting shot eight times. None of them have been arrested and charged. Um, so, I don't know. I think... Ahmaud Aubrey was killed while jogging, man, by not even, and, and not even by law enforcement. Right. You know, who, who could pretend to hide behind some false sense of security. So... So yeah, I mean, I think there there need to be practical solutions, and um, you know whether that involve involves just um, making it easier and more common to prosecute these officers who commit murder, um, or just defunding the police altogether. Um, it's you know what's been done and and what's been talked about clearly hasn't been enough to your point about um, Canada and us sitting here in Toronto and you know I've heard for so long people say well it's not as bad in Canada as it is in the states and look that on a on a on a grand scale if you're talking about degrees and severity sure I I suppose that's the case but first of all we shouldn't be talking about these things in degrees and severity because racism is racism and if it exists it's a problem and also if you if you believe that it doesn't exist in Canada or in Toronto, or if you think Canada or wherever you are, if you think your place of residence is immune to this problem, then I would simply suggest that you need to diversify your friend group because you're probably not talking to enough people that deal with this stuff. Even if it's diversifying your friend group in terms of the people you hang out with and how open-minded they are, because it's just such a naive way of thinking and such a closed-minded way of thinking. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's also important to just like recognize how sort of widespread the issue is and how many aspects of society it touches. Um, and obviously, you know, these protests were set off because a handcuffed black man was senselessly murdered on camera. 
and that it took days for even one of the offending officers to not even be brought to justice. Like he was arrested and charged with third degree murder and manslaughter. But then there was a medical examiner's report that came out shortly afterwards saying that George Floyd died of a combination of factors, including a pre-existing heart condition and quote, potential intoxicants. It's not just that. And it's not just, you know, the, the countless other uh, young black people who have been killed by police in just the last few years, you know, whether it's Breonna Taylor or Philando Castile or Eric Garner or Mike Brown or Freddie Gray or Sandra Bland or Tamir Rice. There's like also been targeted voter suppression and disenfranchisement and housing discrimination, um, employment discrimination, a, a criminal justice system that is rigged against black people and police practices uh, like carding or stop and frisk that disproportionately target black people or crusades like the war on drugs that disproportionately target black people or you know even something like a, a lack of access to good health care which you mentioned before where even something like covid that we think of as affecting all of us equally is not affecting all of us equally it's actually disproportionately killing black people <laughs> like let me be clear i'm as guilty as anybody of only paying like full attention to this shit when there is one of these instances of, of brazen recorded police murder and it sort of blows up in the national news and the images of that and the fallout and the anger is sort of shoved in my face. Um, like I spend most of my life sheltered from incidents of racial violence and also benefiting from society's racist power structure. And I don't think I reckon with that nearly enough. I feel like I've grown way too comfortable inside that bubble. So I am like trying to get comfortable being uncomfortable and hoping that I have the, the moral courage to stay that way. And like, I'm not looking for a pat on the back here. I'm really not. Uh, I, I don't think that acknowledging this stuff absolves me of my own sins of ignorance or passivity in the past. I'm just... Um, I just think acknowledging the reality of the situation um, and also, you know, using whatever resources I have and, and donating money to causes that can help the Black Lives Matter movement and amplifying the voices of marginalized people who have been screaming for change for so long. Like, that's literally the least that I can do. It's it's the bare minimum. And, and again, I think... Um it's about finding a way to be actively anti-racist, right? As opposed to just, you know, what unfortunately a lot of white people and, and yeah, we're both guilty of it. And, and a lot of people are guilty of it where, you know, you, um, you like, yeah, you, you live in a way that there's not a racist bone in your body and you have whatever set of friends and you're there for them and you, and you do anything for them and, and you are anti-racist, but we, we all have to get to a point and white people, especially people not in the black community, especially where being actively anti-racism and actually doing something about it is the norm you know that's the way it needs to be and you know like hopefully based on everything we're seeing and and how people have risen up you know from all communities to take part in this um, movement what really seems like a movement hopefully this is truly the start of something different and a change where people are going to be actively anti-racist and like you said you know the least we can do is amplify um black voices and those who are, are trying to do good and and make a positive change um you know you can donate to uh, different causes related to the black movement and and 
to those who face discrimination on a daily basis, but you can also donate your time. As I mentioned, you know, I understand not everyone has the resources to, to donate financially. You can donate your time. Um, you can, you can share, um, stories and you can educate others and you can welcome education yourself. You know, I think one of the biggest mistakes we can make is to assume, well, like, no, I am educated about it because I have read about it or I, I do know the history of it. And so no, the, on the education front, I'm good. It's like, no, man, if we, we can always be more educated and especially about a situation like this. So um, be open-minded to being more educated about it and and then share that education with others. Like there, there are so many ways you can help and it, we can help and it, yeah, it, it, it feels like it's the least we can do, but you know, that's where you have to start. You have to start with the least we can do and right. build from there. And I really do. Uh, maybe it's naive of me. Maybe it's a bit of um, hopeless optimism, but I do believe just in the, in, in the amount of people I've seen. And again, people that, you know, I've always known are good people and don't have a racist bone in their bodies. But this time it seems different in the sense that people do seem a lot more committed to starting to be actively anti-racist as opposed to just being not racist. You know, you mentioned even like the original medical examiner's report and um, the way they skirt around the idea of intoxicants and George Floyd's potential underlying health issues that may have, you know, contributed to this, which was just such a, a bullshit situation. I think that's another example of, and I know that's very different because that's, you know, a medical examiner's report, but in general, I think that's an example of how important language is right now. And when I say that, I mean, you know, don't tippy toe around things in the language that you use. Like, um, don't tippy toe around the fact that murder is murder and, and police murdered this man or have murdered others. Definitely don't tippy toe around or avoid using the specific phrase, black lives matter. And like the amount of people that still don't seem to understand that that phrase and that movement came about because my visible minorities, but black people especially were being treated and especially by law enforcement, like their lives didn't matter. And so that is why that phrase and that movement started. And if you can't understand that, and if you're so repulsed by the idea of saying black lives matter, because you think that is an affront to your belief that all lives matter, it is just such an asinine way of thinking. And people need to get past that. And a perfect example, Grant Napier, King's play-by-play man, popular figure in Sacramento, uh, famous for the, uh, you know, after a big King's highlight, if you don't like that, you don't like King's basketball or you don't like NBA basketball. Boogie Cousins tweets at him um, in what I'm sure Boogie knew was going to get him in hot water, but good, all the power to him. Tweets to him a couple nights ago asking what he thinks of, of the Black Lives Matter movement and Grant Napier responds um, by ending that tweet by saying all lives matter and does it in a way so that it's like, well, I, you know, this is what I, I believe in equality. And so all lives matter. And then because of that, of course, black lives matter. But it's like, man, what? why are you jumping through hoops to just avoid saying, yes, absolutely. I'm with that movement. Black lives matter. I saw someone, you know, I'm, I'm not on TikTok and I'm not usually up uh, on what's happening on TikTok, but I actually did see. Uh, a really good and I thought powerful message on TikTok. I'm not sure if you saw it. And um, this young woman did something on like, this is how ridiculous you sound when uh, you say all lives matter to someone saying black lives matter. And it was supposed to be, I think it was the same woman playing both characters, but one character says that she was going to help neighbors because the house was on fire. And the other character says, well, what about my house? And, and the right. character wants to help saying, well, I, I don't know, but I'm going to, I'm going to help this house that's on fire. And the one that's in this like safe house is just saying, yeah, but doesn't my house matter? Like that, that is truly how asinine 
the idea of being repulsed by Black Lives Matter because it doesn't include all lives seen. But that's, yeah, and so, it's not Black Lives Matter more than other lives or Black exactly. Lives Matter and other lives don't. Exactly. Um, and that's that's the thing that's so frustrating when people just like refuse to say it or refuse to acknowledge it. Like I'm, yeah. I'm Jewish. My grandfather's a Holocaust survivor, you know? And so that sort of trauma and tragedy has been kind of deeply embedded in my family and my life. And it, it would be like the exact same as me telling somebody, you know, Holocaust education matters. Holocaust education is important. Yeah. And then saying, well, no, all education is important. Yeah. You know, like there are so many other travesties that have happened. Like, why are we yeah. focusing on just this thing? Like, yeah. you're just totally missing the point, willfully missing the point. I mean, I'm glad that, that Grant Napier got called out and yep. told on himself. And I'm glad he, that he's, I believe he's, just, he's been suspended. He's yeah. suspended. Yeah. Good. And, and, and that's what I'm saying. Like that, this needs to become the norm. Mm. If you're going to be afraid to, or not even afraid of just against using the language that needs to be used right now and, and taking even the smallest steps towards pushing this cause forward, then you need to be called out and you need to face repercussions for that. And I don't think that's harsh. So, um, in that light, I just, yeah, I just wanted to mention that like language matters. And it just and and you need to be using the right language and not be afraid of it. Yeah, and I'm, I I don't think like fixing or eradicating racism, um, and uh, like as a big picture issue that that's far from simple. It's extremely complicated, and if it ever happens, which doesn't seem like it's going to be possible to ever completely eradicate it, but uh, to get to the point where systemic racism isn't as big of a problem as it is now is going to be a massive undertaking but there are certain aspects of this that shouldn't be that complicated and one of them is just like demanding transparency and accountability from police who murder people and i i feel like that's a good place to start so uh, i don't and, do and go ahead i was just saying to that point as well you know like voting and taking part in um civic discourse and Duty is a big part of this too. And, and civic duty isn't just voting. Um, again, it's taking part of the civic discourse. It's taking action. You know, we're talking about being actively anti-racist. There are certain things that, you know, have been, have come to light, re like as all this is happening, they're not new. They've been out there forever, but they're getting more attention now. One of those things is, you know, in North America, especially if you look at the proportion of a city budget, for example, that goes to policing and you compare that to things like affordable housing, shelters, education, things like that. And look, I'm not, you know, I'm not an economist, never been a politician, don't know the ins and outs of it. I'm not naive enough to say I understand exactly how that breakdown should be, but I do think it's pretty warped when you look at it. And that is a perfect example of, um, you know, in Toronto, for example, uh, a $1 billion police budget, I believe was just passed for, for this year or next year. It's just, maybe it's as simple as picking up a phone to your local city councilor, sending an, a note, an email, whatever the case may be. Again, I'm not saying that's going to change or fix anything, but that is a step you can take. Too many times people look at it as like, well, what is that going to do? What is this phone call going to do? What is this tweet going to do? What is this? No, man. They, if ever there was a time to realize that you, you do have a platform, especially in the social media era, this is the time to know it and to understand it. So even things like that, not just voting, but actually taking part in the civic discourse, sharing that stuff with others around you that you know will also be passionate about it and who might join you in joining that discourse and starting a little movement of your own. Like these are all things that are important. 
Seeing as this is an NBA podcast, should we talk just about how the NBA has kind of engaged with this issue? And I mean, the first uh, the first person I think that sort of made his voice heard on this was Steven Jackson, who knew George Floyd personally, called him twin because I guess they look alike, um, and gave what I felt like was a pretty powerful speech uh, at an assembly in Minneapolis. Carl Anthony Towns was there. Uh, Josh Okoji was there and Towns as a lot of people pointed out I mean he lost his mother to the coronavirus and for him to kind of risk his own health um, and you know during a period of bereavement and grief uh, still managed to come out and show face for what he obviously felt was a really important cause and I think I, I don't know if the NBA as like an organization has necessarily um been like the best at dealing with stuff like this i think what they've done well is sort of just get out of the way and allow their players to express themselves um and give give their players you know the platform and and the freedom to to say what they feel like they need to say um and obviously i think that's you know if you're making a contrast like the nfl would be a good place to start the NBA is a league where, you know, whose players have had, I think, a pretty proud history of, of activism uh, and speaking out on, on matters of social justice. And so I thought, you know, it was definitely heartening to see to see that Stephen Jackson's reaction to it. Jalen Brown driving 15 hours to protest in Atlanta. Malcolm Brogdon Malcolm as well. Brogdon, yeah. um, Trey Young, Ennis Cantor, Marcus Smart, Tobias Harris. Um, I'm sure there's some players I'm forgetting who have been taking an active role in this. Um, and I think that's a really good thing. And it, and it makes me proud certainly to, to cover the NBA and it also makes me want to be better. It makes me yep. want to, um, to be part of that movement and to, to support the people who are trying to be agents of change. Yeah, for sure, man. And, and, you know, like I mentioned off the top where we, um, we make a living off covering, you know, what we believe is the greatest league in the world. And it's a pre- predominantly black league. And it's, you know, if you're, if you're going to share these athletes stories during the season, when it's convenient for you or, or when it, you know, helps put money in your pocket and, and, and gives you, uh, employment, then, you know, you we have a responsibility to also share their stories and their plight and what they're fighting for in times like this. Um, it should not be a one way street. And and so yeah, I'm I'm glad you mentioned that. And I think in general, you know, the NBA has been pretty good about it. I'm I'm sure there are flaws, um, and probably too many to even try to list. But yeah, I do think. Um, well, it's, I know it's you, always you been on in- Twitter called out James Dolan's Knicks for. Yeah, which is just, you know, uh, okay, and this is a perfect example too. Again, I I don't want to get into like too into the weeds about basketball today or, you know, complaints about basketball. But, you know, James Dolan is another guy that we've made fun of on this podcast a lot. And it's almost become a running joke. Like, you know, I I even mentioned that he he was taking over for Ernie Grunfeld in in the, you know, Pound the Rock Clown Hall of Fame kind of thing. Well, this is a perfect example of like, yo, don't ever... um, feel shy or whatever the case may be about calling someone like James Dolan, you know, as a clown or being worried. Like, I think for the most part between you and I, like when we, even when we criticize someone from a basketball perspective and in, you know, in our usual kind of job 
we do it from a sense of like, even when we're being funny, we try to stay professional. I try not to attack people on a personal level when I'm talking about basketball, but James Dolan is an example of one. Like, no, you can attack him personally too, because the guy is just a straight up clown. He has been a clown. You can read his comments about why he supports Donald Trump from four, three, four years ago when the, when it first came up that he was friends with Trump and was supporting him in the election. Like, He's surely not every the turn. only NBA owner also who supports no, Trump. Exactly. Um, just a clown at every turn. And um, I don't even remember who leaked that email now, but good on them for doing it. But if you if you don't even know what we're talking about, um, someone obtained an email that James Dolan sent to MSG employees about why the Knicks haven't released a statement. And essentially it boiled down to that, you know, he didn't feel that they, like the organization isn't um, qualified to speak on this matter. And that is such bullshit. That just goes to exactly what, what I was saying at the beginning about how, first of all, no matter how small or big your platform is right now, you should not think it's too small. No platform is too small right now to share this message and keep this movement going. But you're the New York freaking Knicks. You are literally, despite the clown show you've been running for the last two decades, the most valuable franchise in the NBA, a booming business. You're a multi-billion dollar business. And there are people out there with six followers who are posting something on Instagram, you know, wholeheartedly, not not in jest, not half-heartedly, but wholeheartedly doing. And you, with your millions of followers and your billions of dollars, feel unqualified to say something, really? Meanwhile, as someone else pointed out on Twitter, again, I always I see these things on Twitter and then I forget who it was to give proper credit. But someone else, it was not me, someone else did mention on Twitter. Like, you're the New York Knicks. You, you put a statement out about everything. You put a statement out about the fact that you didn't actually offer, um, was it Richard Jefferson? No, was it Richard Jefferson? Yeah, it was Richard, was Richard it? Jefferson. Yeah, Richard, you put out a statement a few months ago to let everyone know that, oh, by the way, you didn't offer Richard Jefferson right. anything despite what he said on TV. Like, you could put a statement out about that within a matter of, I, I think, minutes or like hours. And a week and a little bit later, after the police killed another black man, after all the civil unrest that's happened in the last week and half, and rightfully so, you, you are at a loss for words because you feel unqualified to speak on the matter. Like, come on, man. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to pretend that like whatever statement the Knicks might have put out wouldn't have been totally transparent and cynical, but I still feel like, I don't know, maybe just as a like a bare minimum gesture of solidarity, just scrape a few words together. Because uh, like a lot of these statements, whether it's from, you know, teams in the league or just corporations in general that I think a lot of people can see through as being more or less disingenuous, like... I don't know. It's a start, you know, and I, I, it's just, it's just weird to not put anything out when most of the other teams in the league, uh, have managed to, to do so. And yeah. And then, like you said, for him to have, to have sent that, that internal memo out saying that they didn't feel qualified to do like to say anything. Um, when, like you say, they've no team, uh, puts out more petty, irrelevant, insignificant statements than the Knicks do. So this one time to put out even just like a generic boilerplate, platitude-filled statement that nobody is really going to consider genuine, like it still just feels like the least that you can do. Yeah, and you know, you mentioned it being a start. Like, look, I agree with you. There, there, is, a lot of, there are a lot of statements out there on a corporate level yeah, that aren't, you know, I mentioned the difference between half-hearted and whole-hearted. That they're pretty half-hearted, deep down and hypocritical. But I, th- I do also think it's possible. 
you know, we mentioned like some of the change we're seeing and and even good people that have always been not racist, but now are taking up the torch signal are going to be actively anti-racist. Like I do think it's possible that whether it's a corporation, a CEO, whoever the case may be, that maybe just wouldn't have thought to even put out a statement or say something and make good feelings known a year ago, two years ago. I think it's possible that they're wrapped up in this movement now and and putting out a statement might actually be the start of some change. You know, I'm not naive enough to think everyone will change, but I I do believe everyone's capable of change and that some people who need to change will be changed by this. Some people, not a lot, but some will. And, and some is better than none. And and so even, even the Knicks, even as much of a clown as James Dolan is, a statement, like you said, could just be the start, you know, right. do it. That's that's your first step out of a million that you need to take, but at least it would be a first step. And you can't even do that. And if one Knicks fan, like, could one single Knicks fan, like, happen to see that statement as, like, watered down and generic as it might be, and and it made them think about things a little bit differently? I don't know who that one Knicks fan would be. Like, I, and that's the thing. Like, I, it's weird calling for a team to just put out one of those generic statements because I don't think it actually changes anybody's mind, to be honest. Right. But, like... Maybe one fan sees that and because they just love the Knicks so much and like have never really thought about this issue on more than a, like a totally abstract surface level and start thinking about it a little bit more in depth because of that, then it's worth it. And that's that's all it is. That's all it takes, even if it's just to kind of publicly save face. One of my last thoughts in the matter is, and again, like you know, I, I don't have the answer or a solution, but I think it's something we can both agree on and it's something we've talked to others about as well. You know, our more diverse friends in the industry, but is that uh, representation in media matters too. And um, 100%, you know, we see it in Toronto sports media. We live in literally what might be probably is the most multicultural big city in the world. And yet even in Toronto sports media and in Canadian sports media, it is very evident when you walk into an arena, even to cover a Raptors game, you know, to cover a, uh, a predominantly black league in the most multicultural city in the world. The fans, for the most part, represent what Toronto looks like. But if you look at media row a lot of times, and hell, we're sitting in there too, um, it, it's not representative of the city, the fan base. That and, I, and it does matter. And and so diversity in sports media, diversity in media in general matters. Right. So that it's not just... Um, Two white guys on a podcast talking about right, anti-racism. You know? yeah. yeah. Yeah, I um, think that's... And look, like that, that goes for us in our newsroom as well. You know, I think it's incumbent on us to not accept that and, and to ask for better. I think, um, you know, unless, unless there's anything else you wanted to add, I mean, I think, I think for the most part, we're good not talking about ball today. Well, you know, the, the NBA, the Board of Governors are expected to, I believe, to vote on a potential format for a potential July 31st restart or late July restart. Mm-hmm. On Thursday, we plan on on doing a second podcast this week, and um, and maybe we can just get into all that then, and 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 leave this for what it is. Yeah, I think I haven't really been thinking about basketball all that much. Um, I, I mean, honestly, like my opinion about it hasn't changed. I just am still skeptical for a number of reasons, um, and you know, I've long said if they are going to come back. Like, really just go to, like, the 16-team playoff format. Like, don't include any more teams than you need to. Don't make that bubble bigger than it needs to be. Um, And I think, obviously, you know, this thing has gained a ton of steam and momentum, and it seems likely now that they're at least going to come to an agreement on a plan to restart. But as to, you know, whether that actually can get off the ground or whether they can finish it after they do start, 
uh, and sort of keep a lid on it and, and not allow an outbreak and, you know, essentially crown a champion at the end of the day, I think there are still a lot of questions to be answered before we can say that with any measure of certainty. We'll see on Thursday how it goes. I mean, I agree with you that, you know, they, they should be trying to keep the bubble as small as possible while still, you know, getting the 16 playoff teams in there. I'm not, I'm not against um, bringing some of those bubble teams in because, you know, in a normal season, those teams would have had a chance to fight for it, especially like, you know, a team like New Orleans. And I know the joke out there is that the NBA, you know, wants nothing more than Zion in the playoff right. race, but which, you know, I'm not naive enough to ignore, but I also do think New Orleans is a perfect example that, you know, in a normal season, it, it's not like they had been mathematically eliminated already or even close to eliminated where you can say, well, too bad. They weren't in the top eight. Don't bring them in. Like they, they would have had another quarter of the season essentially to make up ground. And a lot of projection models even favored them to make up that ground. So I'm fine with a few teams still being left in to battle it out, but as few as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and despite that, we both know that at the end of the day, it's about following the money and, Indeed, there, the NBA is going like most sports leagues is going to balance some semblance of health and safety with the ability to still maximize their revenue as best as possible. And I saw one report that said like, you know, the difference between having 16 teams and 22 teams is like a matter of several hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue, which I, that's, I don't know if I actually believe that, but obviously there is going to be a revenue difference one way or another. Um, they want the television revenue, uh, and also, I mean, it, it sounds like the teams that are going to be in the playoffs do want some runway where they play some tune-up games rather than going straight to the playoffs. So I can understand that too. Um, 22 teams seems like a lot to me and maybe more than is necessary. I'm not you know, particularly interested in seeing the Wizards play any more games this season. Um, but again, like I... I don't know. Like maybe there was a time when I felt like I really wanted basketball to come back. And I feel like I've just gotten to a point where uh, it it just doesn't feel particularly important right now, given the other safety concerns and given what else is going on in the world. So, yeah, I'm with you there. Um, All right. I think, uh, I think that does it for today's episode. Like I said, we fully plan on recording a second episode this week. I I hope this conversation has been, I don't know if helpful is the right word, but um I just hope we've taken part in um, in an important conversation, and I think we have, but again, not naive enough to believe this is going to change anything or anything like that. Well aware that there is a very, 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 very long road ahead of us um, in continuing to push this movement forward. Thanks to, anyone, to everyone who listened. If you tuned in and tuned out quickly, you're lost, to be honest. Um, and uh, yeah, and I'd also encourage you know our, our listeners um, and not just listeners from the black community, but listeners in general, you know, if you have feedback about what we talked about today, if there's, you know, if you, if, if you thought it was an important message, but also hell, if you think, um, we missed the mark on something or, or anything like that, sure. People that, you know, listen to this for the most part, follow us all, already, but don't be afraid to, um, tweet at us, send us a note. My email is joseph.cachardo at the score.com. Joe's is joe.wolf on at the score.com. Send us a note. And other than that, again, just thanks for listening. And, and if you are listening, please take this call to, to action, not just from us, but from everyone and, and be actively anti-racist and, and push this movement forward. Yeah. And if you are out there protesting, just, you know, be safe, take care of yeah. yourself. And we stand with you. For Joe Wolfon, I'm Joseph Cacharo. Pound the Rock.